Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this daily science fiction extravaganza, commonly known as Tales, Tales from Outer from space. Out, space. Out, space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider supporting the channel. On to the science fiction. Story number one. After the end of the universe. Written by Xvila. False vacuum catastrophe. We all laughed nervously when we thought the concept, didn't we? Every species did. A city end to the world thing that couldn't happen, right? That empty space was actually metastable. It wasn't empty. It wasn't the real ground state of the universe. How could that be? Then scientists prodded more deep into the universe, and with quantum field theory it became something possible. The vacuum was full of energy. Nothingness was full of energy. The humans humorously called this the worst prediction in history. Because the naive solution to quantum physics tells the difference between predicted and measured vacuum was 120 orders of magnitude. Now we all laugh nervously because of sheer terror. The whole universe could end at any moment with a vacuum decaying into the energyless ground estate. We laughed because there was nothing we could do about it. If it happened, it happened. We wouldn't even have any warning. Everything would just end. We wouldn't ever have noticed that happened. We laughed and went on with our business, and life went on. Then it happened. How naive we had been, thinking that it would mean the end of the universe. Maybe we'd been lucky if it had... When the universe decayed into the ground state, it didn't affect our usual four dimensions of space-time. With height, length, time, clocks ticked on, all our houses were left standing. The sun still shone in the sky, twirled still twirted in their trees, and cyan blood kept pumping through each of our bodies. Life went on. No, what balanced the equation was the other seven curled dimensions of our eleven-dimensional space-time, the ones that had been infinitesimal, the size of a superstring, the ones we depended on to manipulate and bend space-time to our will, to bridge the gaps between the stars, to send messengers and matter faster than the speed of light, to lift things into orbit, to power everything by manipulating the very fabric of the universe. Those seven extra dimensions were no longer infinitesimal. They had all compacted to zero. In an instant, all the quantum fields depending on those dimensions ceased to be. All we had left was the standard model of relativity. All we had left was ourselves. The communication networks fell silent. The ships in orbit fired their jump drives and nothing happened. The grab drive lifters remained grounded by the planet's mass. The really unfortunate ones fell from the skies. Even the total conversion power plants fizzled when the quarks refused to decay on command. This all happened 70 years ago. A lot of people died then, directly or indirectly. But life continued on. Sometimes I wonder if they weren't the lucky ones. 
There are no more orbital cities, no more settlements in solar system, only Erolus. The only other planet that could become self-sufficient before they all died is still inhabited. We keep in contact with radio now. Not many people travel between, even though we are back in space now, with chemical and nuclear rockets. Technology from a thousand years ago that we had to relearn. I barely remember the time before when we had instant communication, plentiful energy, and easy travel to other worlds, even to other stars. I was ten standard years old when it happened. My mother had taken me to see the rings of sulfur and largest gas giant in the system a month before. I remember how they looked, big, shimmering, and marvelous. It was the last time I'd seen space with my own eyes. Or my mother. After the vacation, she had returned to Earth, back to her posting as the head ambassador of the nascent humans. Afterwards, all I had left were the holographs taken in distant places. I sometimes wondered how they were doing in those places. The humans, our nearest neighbors, only perfected their first jump drive and reached the galactic age a few decades before the event. A tantalizing glimpse at the universe dangled in front of them upon their first contact, only to be snatched away. It had been an exciting time for us as well, for we could finally break the pre-contact silence with them. The Koala, we had close ties with them. The Kuchoroi, the Deary, the Vendrix, all of these were now just names. For us, they might as well have not existed anymore, except for the few individuals who were still living amongst us. Trapped here, just like everyone else. Only for them, it must have been even worse. Cut off from home and loved ones forever, trapped on an alien world going through the worst calamity in history. I hardly understood what had happened when everything went dark that one day. Going through the hardships, it took me a long time to accept that it all would ever come back. The universe I had known was literally gone. We were alone. No one could help us. No one could reach us, even as a society collapsed all around us from lack of energy, lack of food, and lack of energy to harvest and transport what little food we had. It took a long time for us to pull ourselves up from that. I was in my thirties when we finally had reliable power generation again on a planetary scale. We'd had power before that, but it had been spotty, unreliable, and rationed. There just wasn't enough for it for everyone. We had to turn, again, to technologies from a millennia ago. Nuclear fission, then fusion. We had to power an entire planet starting from nothing. In the beginning, we even burned fossil fuels again just to power enough industry to get things moving. By the time we could provide the basic needs of everyone, over six billion people had died of starvation or disease, or even just chaos of collapse of social order. I was lucky just to survive through all of that. But life went on. When things had become stable enough again, I took a mate and procreated. As silly as it seemed at the time, so much had been lost. The future looked bleak. What was the point? Many had decided there wasn't one. But even if the old universe was gone... We were still here, alone, but alive. 
So life had to go on, even if we didn't know why. Slowly, things got better. Even if there was no returning to the past, things got better. We adjusted and adapted and learned to live in our new universe. We even got back into space. First, with satellites, we got planet-wide communications networks back up. Now, with radio, then a small space station. Twenty years ago, we sent the first ships to Ilris. Six of our people went there, and six Ilrians returned. I don't know if you remember that. It wasn't much, but as simple, it was powerful. We may have been alone in the universe now, but at least we still had each other in the solar system. Every few years, as the planets aligned right, the Nyssa, named after an ancient watcher over travelers, makes another journey between the two planets. We had scientists, astronomers, and astrophysicists looking at the skies again, trying to learn anything they could about the vacuum decay event and how it had changed the universe. All they really learned was that they were quite certain that it had happened everywhere, that we weren't unique. They could detect no more effects of the dark energy within 60 light-year bubble around us. The light beyond that was still old light from the universe that didn't exist anymore. This was a final verification that nothing could be done to reverse it. That was ten years ago. They may not have learned how to fix the universe, but they did discover something else. Anomalous readings from the yellow star 15 light years distant that the humans called Sol, or rather, from the point in space near it. Energetic, blue-shifted recombination lines of hydrogen and helium. For years, this made no sense to us as we watched it. We saw the blue shift decrease while the source of these photons became brighter. As much as we couldn't believe it, there was only one possible explanation. Something was coming fast towards us and slowing down. Then we had to believe it. As an object was passing through our Oort cloud, we detected radio broadcasts from it and several fundamental frequencies of the universe. Resonance of hydrogen and hydroxyl molecules and their harmonics. The signals were too faint to understand at first, but each passing day they became stronger. It was a repeating message broadcast every ten minutes. We greet you, friends, on behalf of all of humanity. This is Express Mail Ship Hermes. We bring you messages from Earth. Please allow peaceful passage of this vessel to your world. Know that you do not stand alone in the night. By the time Hermes had passed through the Oort Cloud, it had slowed down enough that it would take almost another year for it to reach the inner system. It had been an agonizing wait as we watched the ship slowly crawled towards us. It was such an irony that a ship had crossed half the gulf of the stars of a great fraction of light speed would take so long to bridge the final couple hundred AU. But the human's clever design traded thrust for impulse, and so, while it could get up to significant fractions of the speed of light, it took decades for it to build up that speed, and then decades to deaccelerate. The ship engine had arrays of Z-pinch magnets that continuously cycled to squeeze a rotating high electrical flow of deuterium plasma into fusion temperatures. Another set of nozzles injected a stream of hydrogen which enveloped the fusion deuterium. Heated by the fusion, the hydrogen stream was culminated with the magnetic nozzle into thrust. 
The engine had incredible efficiency, but could only pass a small stream of hydrogen through it, resulting in very low thrust. But over decades, even a continuous push of a feather became mighty. Two months before the ship finally braked into our orbit, the automated message turned off and was replaced by the voice of a live human. The ship computer had woken up the two crewmen from their deep cryo-hibernation. I can't even describe the feeling I had. We all had, talking to a being from beyond the stars. For many are for the first time. But then, I guess I don't have to. You know it as well as I do. Since my mother had been the ambassador to the humans, I was there when they landed with their small landing craft and ceremoniously handed us data cards that contained the declaration of their mission to reconnect every planet, species, and star again. On the card were the schematics for the Z-Pinch Drive and the Messenger-class ships that was in orbit. Of course, the data card had handed was just symbolic. The real payload was stored in the computers of the lander, petabytes upon petabytes of data, personal messages, official messages, greetings and well-wishes from all the people of Seoul, hollows, literature, music and culture, scientific data and engineering schematics, everything the humans knew about fusion, vision, radio and all other technologies, space and planet-bound, that had been obsolete for many millennia. Everything needed to know to bring a world back to the cusp of the galactic age. For the humans had only made contact with the galaxy a few decades before the catastrophe. Even their first jump drive had been still fusion-powered with the same reaction drives that they'd perfected over the centuries that they'd spent colonizing their own solar system the hard way. They weren't yet dependent on all the technologies that had stopped working when the vacuum decayed. They just turned on their old fusion plants, rockets and radio relays back on and continued from where they had left off. Because of their backwardness and they still experts in all the old technologies, the ones that still worked. How's that for irony? All the technology they handed over in exchange for just one promise to refuel the ship and continue their mission. The humans would have to remain here, for the cryo-hibernation was too hard in the person's system to do twice. Two of us would have to take up their mantle and carry on. They had even brought some physical items from Earth with them. Not a lot, for every gram was precious, but still some. I'm sure you can imagine my surprise when one of the humans came to my doorstep. I don't even remember what he said when he handed me the small container. When I opened it, inside was a small plastic trinket, a pendant in the shape of sulfur, with its rings glittering in the hues of gold and silver, a cheap souvenir my mother had bought seventy years ago. I have no words to describe what I had felt then. All the memories flooded back, all the years of hardships melted away. I was ten years old again, looking at the beautiful planet with my mother, and the universe was full of hope and wonder. I know more than most how much it means to not be alone anymore, how much even the smallest connection can mean to someone. Grandson, I may not ever see you again after the Hermes leaves orbit for the Qualm homeworld, but know that I couldn't be prouder that you were chosen as one to continue the Hermes' mission." That you will continue to deliver the message that we are not alone ever again. 
to those who need it the most. End of story. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode, and I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.